This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Here's the song that we'd like to do for all the younger set of people, the teenagers and what have you. This one's called Vacation Zone. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and did you miss us? Oh, we missed you too. And as much as we love the Finn Turn who helps us clean up this place every eight weeks, it's time to get back to business. Today, to kick off this series of shows, we welcome from Be Wealthy and Smart, Linda P. Jones. Plus, in our headline segment, Is Active Investing Dead? We'll weigh in. Plus, we'll answer your fantastic money letters, throw out the Haven Lifeline, and save a listener. And then, triumphantly, I will return to share some of my amazing trivia. And now, two guys who spent the whole week last week playing foosball... Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. And the triumphant champion of Basement Foosball, again me. We had last week off? <laughs> you thought that was work? I expect to get paid for that time. <laughs> I'm taking my drubbing at Foosball. Having to yeah. stay here with us. Hey everybody, welcome back. We're so glad to be back here in the chair. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table again, getting all settled in after taking a drubbing over and over and over at foosball. It's Mr. OG. Taking a drubbing. Yep. Uh, maybe I might have let you win. Just saying. You played so bad at goalie with that goalie guy. You ever think about... I only have two hands. How many of these things am I supposed to control? Well, it seems like you should have teammates. You would always miss it by about three inches. You ever think about getting some glasses? Maybe I should. Maybe you should. Well, thanks to Warby Parker for supporting Stacking Benjamins. Get boutique quality stylish eyewear and sunglasses at revolutionary prices. I just picked up a pair, by the way. Try them for yourself by going to warbyparker.com forward slash SB to order your free home try-on kit with free shipping all around. I picked five sets of frames. Actually, I lie. I picked four. They sent me a fifth one. Just, hey, let's fill up the box. Try it out. And the one they picked... For me, I don't know, looked pretty sweet, but the first one I picked was actually ended up, ended up being the best. Thanks that was to, the winner, huh? Yeah, thanks to Warby Parker for supporting us. Warbyparker.com forward slash SB for the try-on kit. And also, we are brought to you by Away. Away makes first-class luggage that I took to Europe at coach prices that allow you to charge your phone on the go for $20 off a suitcase Go to awaytravel.com forward slash SB and use the promo code SB 
That's awaytravel.com slash SB, promo code SB. I just ordered another one. Well, I told you I did. So I have two as well now. Did you order the bigger one this time? I can't remember what size I had. So I ordered, there's like the two carry-on sizes. Yeah, I had the smaller carry-on size. Now I ordered one that's the bigger carry-on size. I gotcha. Okay, yeah, that's the one I did. Yeah. If you look closely, but because mine are the same color, if you set them side by side, they're definitely bigger. But when I first got it, I'm like, oh, this looks exactly like the other one. I set it next to the first one though. I went, oh no, it's not. Good stuff there. All right, welcome to the Glasses and Luggage Podcast. We got tons of stuff, man. We have to move today because we've got a packed show. Linda P. Jones in the basement. But first, you got to check out these headlines. Let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Back at the end of our last eight weeks, for those of you new to the show, we podcast for eight weeks and then we're off for a week, which was this last week playing with our- Hooky. Yes. While the Finn turn spends time with some of our favorite past episodes or his favorite past episodes from the show. But just before the break, we talked about active funds and uh, Barry Ritzholtz wrote a great piece about how the death of active investing might be overstated by a lot of people. Listen to this one. New AB study finds financial professionals want the best of both worlds, active management with passive-like fees. Isn't this what I just said? (laughs) For those of you paying attention a week and a half ago. With equity markets all over the place, we believe advisors are growing increasingly concerned about a potential market correction and have little confidence that passive investment strategies provide adequate downside protection for client portfolios, finds a new survey of more than 200 financial professionals conducted by Alliance Bernstein. Now, part of this, by the (laughs) way... Conducted by an active fund manager. Right. But go ahead. (laughs) Right. I guess the studies commissioned by BlackRock and Vanguard are going to suggest that uh, 200 advisors are, anyway. Love low fees. Yes. Mm -hmm. The survey fielded at the annual Schwab Impact Conference also found that many advisors are interested in flexible fee structures. Most financial professionals would consider an actively managed mutual fund that charges passive-like fees with higher fees only when the fund outperforms its benchmark index. That's interesting. So a hedge fund, okay. Yeah, more of a hedge fund approach. And for those people who don't know how a hedge fund works, instead of having a set percentage fee, it's based on whatever they make. And instead of keeping maybe half a percent, they'll keep 50%. Well, a lot of them still have an asset management fee of 1% or 2% plus percentage of the gain. Yep. You know, and back to Barry Ritzold's article, and for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, this uh, fantastic uh, money manager, Barry Ritzold's commentator, he said that active is changing and we have to get away from benchmark huggers. I think that's kind of the point here, OG, is that I think a lot of people would be happy if active managers got away from being benchmark huggers. And when they make extra money, hey, let's, let's split it. And if you lose more money than what the index is, then you know maybe my fee is minuscule, if any. Well, when it comes to this discussion about active versus passive, I think most people hit the hammer on the wrong nail. They're looking at it from the perspective of the fee approach, which is important, and you have to have reasonably low costs. But the thing that gets misquoted is that you can't beat the market. So if you can't beat them, join them. Okay, you can, and there are plenty of people who do, The problem is identifying those people in advance and paying the other 800 people that don't outperform 
the fees to outperform and then to find out later that they didn't outperform. Yeah. So this is a great combination. And what, what we're talking about here is we'll try to beat the market. Why wouldn't you want to try to do better? Of course you want to try to do better, but you can do better through lower cost and you can do better through more strategic asset allocation. And ultimately at the end of the day, none of this actually matters. It doesn't matter if you beat the S&P 500. It matters if your financial goals are accomplished within the parameters of the volatility and risk profile that you need to remain sane. And if you're supposed to get 7% a year, then who gives a damn what the S&P does? We spend a lot of time focusing on these indexes. I think our main question is, what's your index? Yeah. What do you have to do based on your savings rate, based on the goals that you want to achieve, based on the time frame that you have to achieve it? I tell people, we're going to tell your money what to do. And it sounds really silly. You say, well, I can't, you know, money's going to do whatever it's going to do on a day-to-day basis. And that's true. But if we design an asset allocation, we've got a pretty high likelihood that we know what this will look like over the next 20 or 30 years based on the last 20 or 30, right? So at the end of the day, it's all about your specific goals. And I think we want to have low costs, but ultimately we want to get away from trying to compare ourselves against everybody else. It doesn't matter what your neighbor did. It doesn't matter what the S&P did matters what you did. And if you got 13% a year for the next 20 years, but you needed 14, you still ran out of money. So too bad. I love this idea though, of making yourself an index because you look at how analytical these indexes have become and how much analysis people put into comparing themselves with the index, comparing funds against the index. And yet, OG, when it comes to our own money, we should be easier to create our own quote index for because it's what we know intimately. We just work off of emotions. We just work off of this other predefined stuff instead of off of our own our own backyard. And really, what is an index anyway? It's just a list of stocks put together by a company that they then turn around and license the rights to investment managers. So think about it. The S&P 500 is a list of 500 companies put together by Standard & Poor's that they license to all these other institutions and say, we'll tell you what are going to be in the 500. I guess or the, the Russell 2000 yeah. is a list of 2000. So we could make an index, Joe, you and me, the blue logo company index. I guess the better vernacular would be your own benchmark, not your own index, because you're indexing one thing, what you need. That's <laughs> not, yeah. not quite what an index what does it matter is. What, uh, what does it matter what the rest of the world does? And frankly, to your point, there's more indexes now than there are stocks. Can you believe that? I, I absolutely can believe that. The survey found that a majority of investors believe the market's due for a correction. I'm on oh, that. Oh, good. Well, no, I'm on that train. I think it's due. I just am not going to predict when it's going to happen. But but is the market due? Sure, the market's due. for a, You just look at a bunch of different statistics about the market. I believe it's due for a correction. I would never act on that belief, though. Do you believe the market's due for a correction? I have no You're not even going to play the game. No, uh, I do. I have no idea, but everybody else has no idea either. So no, I don't have any idea. I'm not saying that I have an idea. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's due. But there's a second piece to this, which is this one. 62% would expect passive strategies to perform worse than their active counterparts. I'm not on that train. I think there's way too many benchmark huggers and historically in down markets. And I've been through two of them in my career. I haven't seen that to be the case. Active managers got their butt kicked as much as passive did, but that's because the majority of them 
just try to hang on to that benchmark. And so how do you adjust for that in the market declines? Is it different investments at that point in time? I don't think so. It's the fact that you stick to your guns on your asset allocation. 2008, kind of notwithstanding because everything went down all at the same time, but that's that's unique that everything goes down. More recently, it's a great example of the emerging market kind of volatility that we've seen over the last couple of years. Up one year, 40%, down the next year, 28%, up the next year, 20%. And by holding a constant asset allocation, you're building in dollar cost average opportunities and smoothing out the portfolio performance because you're not trying to compare yourself to, hey, well, the S&P is down 52%, so I guess I should be okay being down 52.04, so yay, go me. Instead, have a diversified portfolio that has a strong likelihood to reach your goals and which rebalance is, when you're supposed to. Which is why I think the takeaway from this particular piece is that while I love this talk of active and active not being dead and the fact that advisors uh, are hanging on to active management, and even though this is a study by Alliance Bernstein and Active Management House, I do believe that a portfolio that focuses on passive strategies is the hull of the ship and maybe uses active just for opportunities is probably a better approach still. Yeah, we call that a core and satellite approach. Our second headline comes to us from USA Today. This is written by Mike Snyder. If you deposit checks through a mobile app, start adding this phrase. Well, that got me to click. You may have recently gotten a message from your bank that yes, you should read and act upon. The message being sent by many banks involves a small but crucial change involving check deposits made using banks' mobile apps on smartphones and other devices. Depositors must now include the phrase, for mobile deposit only, underneath their signature on all checks deposited using mobile apps. Some banks are also suggesting you add for mobile deposit only at bank name or for bank name mobile deposit only. You can see where this is going. Somebody gets access to your camera. You're done. This new endorsement requirement instituted by the Federal Reserve officially went into effect July 1st. It applies to all mobile deposits at all financial institutions such as PNC Bank, Capital One, Legend Bank in Texas. Without the inclusion of the new phrase, banks say the check will be returned with the notification that your deposit was rejected due to restrictive endorsement. The change is meant to protect banks from fraud, which can occur when a check is accidentally or intentionally presented a bank after already has been deposited via mobile. Notice, OG, it's not to protect you, it's to protect banks. <laughs> yes, I knew that was going to happen. I, I, I've i never had a mobile check returned, but, uh, but I always do write for deposit only on the back of them anyway. I haven't done that once, and I've never had one returned, but that makes sense. But you could see sense. how that would work if you were an enterprising criminal. You could uh, get a check and mobile deposit it and regular deposit it on the same day at a different branch or something like that. See if you can't pull out a couple of bucks out of the deal and call it a day. Uh, quote, this is the bank taking care of themselves, said Michael Diamond, Senior Vice President of Payments at MyTech Systems, which is digital transaction technology used by more than 6,100 banks. The channel's very, very, very safe, and the growth is great. More and more people are using it. Case in point, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan said last month that during the April to June period, more customers deposited checks using the bank's mobile app than in person at bank branches. Uh, study said millennials said, what is a check? <laughs> I added that in there. 
<laughs> I've never heard of this check thing. The hell are you talking about check? Uh, good advice there from USA Today. Speaking of uh, digital banking, when we have babysitters, we're always rushing to the ATM to get cash out before we come home. And so I asked Mrs. OG, I said, hey, could you just text the babysitter real quick and see if she takes PayPal or something? And she wrote back and said, actually, yeah, thanks. I prefer Venmo over cash because that's how we uh, that's how we pay for things now. <laughs> Like, we're so out of it. We're like, and here's your 60 bucks. And she's gone, oh, great. These idiots are paying me in 20s again. The hell am I going to do this? I got to do something with this. Can you, how do you, can I take a picture of this cash and put it in my Venmo account? (laughs) For mobile deposit only written on your 20s. (laughs) That's what I'm going to (laughs) do. See if Bank of America falls for that. That's lesson number one. And the lesson number two is uh, active management, hopefully going the right way, but uh, not there yet. Linda P. Jones, Upstairs Talking to Mom. Linda's written a new book, OG, called You Are Already a Wealthy Heiress. And you already knew that already, that you're a wealthy heiress. So good for you. Linda is not only someone who made her first million dollars just before the turn of the century. She's someone that's taught thousands of other people through her Be Wealthy and Smart brand to become not just financially independent, but also much more savvy about investing. She's worked on Wall Street with big Wall Street firms. And of course, she's most famous for being a co-host with me. <laughs> most famous by far. Yeah, because, for sure. Because she works with me on the Money Tree podcast. Uh, I love talking to Linda. Of course, she's been on our roundtable many times, but we're happy to have her here at the card table with us. Let's say hello to Linda P. Jones. Coming down to the basement, my good friend, Linda P. Jones. What are you doing? Oh my gosh, look at this place. It's great to be here with you, Joe. It's a mess though, isn't it? I apologize. It's okay because it's your basement. So <laughs> It's supposed to be, right? It shows that we're working hard. Your mom is not welcome, right? right. <laughs> That's right. Hey, at 10 years old, I want to start here, Linda. At 10 years old, kids are reading Judy Blue, maybe. Well, maybe not even that, right? Not at 10. Maybe that's like 12 or 13, but uh, maybe Beverly Cleary. But you, is this true? You're reading classic financial books at age 10? Well, Think and Grow Rich, which is a classic financial book. Yes, my father gave it to me. I grew up in a, a suburb of Seattle called Mercer Island, where there were very wealthy people that lived there, some who are on the Forbes 400 list. And we were not like that. My dad was a Boeing engineer. My mom was a housewife and I'm the youngest of five kids. So I was conscious of these big houses they lived in, these big boats they had, their waterfront lawns, you know, living on the water. I mean, it was, there was quite a lot of wealth around me. So I think that maybe what really piqued my interest in finding out why are some people wealthy and how do you get that way? So was it a certain lifestyle then that you were after? No, actually, I felt like, I mean, as a 10-year-old, I was thinking, I have one life to live, and I don't want it to have any limitation. I want it to, I want to be able to do whatever I want to do. If I want to travel the world or give things to my parents or go to a good college or whatever I want to do, I don't want to be limited by money. I remember telling my parents at age 10 that I wasn't going to work on weekends. 
<laughs> that that was, I just didn't like it when my dad would do overtime on the weekend. I'm like, nope, that's family time, dad. I don't like it. My dad's like, listen, sometimes there's, there's no way out of that. I'm like, well, I'm not going to have that job. And it turned out I'm going to have a job where I just work all the time, <laughs> but, but I love what I do. So how did you find Think and Grow Rich though? There's no way you just went to the, went to the library. Your dad gave it to you. Okay. Yeah. So he had read it and he liked the positive thinking aspect of it. And I think he thought that would be impressionable on me at a young age. And they were investors. My parents invested in real estate and us children, they taught us to work for our allowance. So I either weeded and earned a per hour or per bag of weeds rate for my allowance, or we worked in cleaning apartment buildings that my parents owned an apartment building and we went in and painted, cleaned. I was so young, I could just vacuum the heater vents and take off the switch plate covers and prepare it for painting and tape a little bit around the edges, things like that. But we learned to work for money and that was also instilled very young. So I think a lot of topics about money were coming up when I was very young and he handed me that book. At age 10, though, what's your biggest takeaway from Think and Grow Rich at that point? Not today, but then. It was your mind has incredible power and what you believe can come true. There was also a quote in there about Aristotle Onassis, which was, if you want to launch big ships, you have to go where the water is deep. So it just got me thinking about risk-taking, what people are doing, dreaming big, Dreaming big and pursuing your dreams, really going after your dreams. Well, it's funny you mentioned that's a great transition because this is what your book is all about. And I want to dwell on the title, Linda, for just a second. The book is called You're Already a Wealth Heiress. It isn't like most books, you know, we have authors on the show all the time, as you know, and when we talk to them, it's usually how to become something. But the way your title reads, it's like they are already there. And I think that there's got to be some importance to that little change in your title. You're very perceptive, Joe. There is. And the idea came to me because just like a little seed, a seedling, has the potential to grow into this enormous tree. When I was researching what some other entrepreneurs had done to build their wealth, I realized, you know, they didn't start out wealthy. They didn't start out brilliant. They didn't start out, you know, Oprah didn't start out with the TV show. She started out, you know, very poor with some really hard circumstances in her family growing up. And I realized that people think that people that create a lot of wealth have some special Gene? gift or well, yeah, like everyone a, has a special gift, but you know what I'm saying? Everyone has the potential. Yeah. Like they've to, got a, a lot of people think they have a different gene than you and I have. Like there's some money-making gene that they have. Yeah. Like somebody else got luckier or yeah, oh, yeah somebody yeah. got a gene that's different. I actually did a podcast on that because scientists were trying to prove that there was a wealth gene. And I just laughed at that. I'm like, no, there's not a wealth gene. <laughs> you know, it's about knowledge and habits and choices. And I believe that anyone can become wealthy. But the idea was that, yes, you're like a seed that can grow into a big tree you, it's a law of nature. You already have this ability within you to create wealth. And a wealth heiress, like some people might think that means you're going to inherit a lot of money. I call a wealth heiress the smart, confident, successful, and wealthy woman already inside of you who has yet to be fully discovered. You talk about there's some myths about wealth building that people have in their head. And you kind of alluded to that just now, that people think that you've got a gene. But I want to walk through a few of these, Linda, if you don't mind, because you start off with, Wealth building is too difficult. You say that's baloney. 
Yeah, I think that it's a matter of knowing what to do and making the right decisions. Let me give you an example real quick. There's two people that earn $40,000 of income, which this in this day and age is not a huge income. But if you make different decisions, you'll end up in two completely different places. So if one person just saves the minimum 2.8% that the average American is saving today, $1,120 a year, over 30 years, that's 33600 saved. If you put that in a 2% savings account, it'll grow to about 48000 Versus if you earn 40000 but you put away 5500 a year, which is the maximum for an IRA, you earn 10% by investing in the stock market, the long-term historical return. Do that for 30 years, you're going to have over a million dollars, a million ninety-one thousand dollars. So two people making the same income, but making different choices and having different financial knowledge are going to end up in different places. You go in a little deeper, and I'm going to get back to the myths here, but I want to dive in a little bit to this. You do a lot of uh, trend following. You look at momentum with investments. When did you first become attracted to that way of building wealth? Well, when I worked on Wall Street, I represented money managers. So it was my job to understand all the different ways that they invested in stocks and created wealth. And a lot of them had their own theories and whatever. One day when I I sort of gave up investing in real estate at that time in the 90s uh, because things were getting difficult and the market was kind of like where we are right now, where interest rates were going up, things were not as profitable as they had been. I was looking around for something else and I noticed the stock market had been up like 30% the year before. And I thought, you know, that doesn't, you don't have to clean toilets. You don't have to work with realtors. You don't have to you know, have a physical property. This might be something to look into and learn more about. And I'd always been a mutual fund investor, but it just didn't seem like I was ever going to get to my retirement goals, at least not very quickly. I mean, if, if at 65. So I thought I really need to look at doing something else and find out another way that I could maybe compound money faster or in a better way. And so I got uh, How to Make Money in Stocks by William J. O'Neill and decided that I would start investing in some stocks myself. Now, I lucked into the technology boom and that cycle of the stock market that was going crazy in the late 90s. And so I you know, did have the wind at my back to make $2 million by the time I was 39. But it really was from my existing knowledge and then what William J. O'Neill said about uh, buying growth stocks and teaching me the metrics about what to look for in a growth stock and then really investing in you know the greatest bubble of all time, really. Yeah, because you've noticed not just that trend, but trends after that. I mean, it, you didn't have the one trend. That's right. I got into learning about cycles and I don't know, I kept running across people who talked about cycles. And so it piqued my interest. And, you know, the oil cycle was very big back in the 80s. And then I noticed that that just completely petered out. So I was just coming out of college trying to think, what am I going to do? And where am I going to go? My family had been more in, in the real estate area. And I thought, I, don't, I think I'm going to head toward more of the stock area. And it just, it just so happened that I landed a job through a referral of a friend and got into working for a brokerage firm. And then my career went from there. So it was always more stock oriented anyway, but building on that and learning about cycles it really showed me that there are certain periods of time where certain investments do better than others. I have an expression, trees don't grow to the sky, meaning people think that something is just going to continue going up and up and up forever. It doesn't. It usually does come to an end and then something else takes its place and starts to do well. But back to your first myth then, to get back into the myths, you say there's the myth that wealth building is hard. 
some people would hear what you just said about following trends and think, oh my goodness, how does she do that? That's hard. How do you make it not difficult to spot where the next trend is headed? Well, I do a lot of reading. That helps. But I think there is anecdotal evidence. And in the book, I talk about 2000. Seven, when I was going to sell my house after my husband and I realized that the housing market was just going crazy. There were, you know, 20 some cranes on the skyline in Bellevue, which was second only to Singapore. These cranes were building million dollar condos. I thought, who is going to buy a million dollar condo and not just one building, but several buildings of them. And it just seemed like we were coming to some sort of an important peak. The frustration with that is I didn't know certain ways to actually play that peak with the real decline of the banks. The issue with the banks is something that I didn't predict, but I did see that it just felt like it was coming to a natural just exuberance that couldn't continue at that pace. And so that was when I chose to sell my house at an important peak. And of course, interest rates went low and we've, we've surpassed that now. So as I mentioned in one of the Money Tree podcasts, I left some money on the table from that. But For me, I was ready to sell, and that seemed to be a good time. And you can look at what's going on in the economy and pick if people are crazy. Like, you know, Joe, back in December, everybody was crazy about Bitcoin, right? (laughs) Everybody was going nuts. I mean, I had a video of someone saying, I don't know what this Bitcoin thing is, but I just have to buy it. And I thought, okay, there we are. That's, That's the craziness that happens at the top of a market. You know, will Bitcoin get above 20,000 again someday? Maybe. I don't know. But I do know I can identify and people can identify when things get out of hand crazy with this tulip bulb hysteria or the Bitcoin hysteria or whichever. It's always a hysteria at the top. So you start off by reading and then do you apply some math to it? Is that what you do? There are different periods of time that some statisticians have actually identified. I mentioned a book in my book where back in the day, decades ago, they did discover that there were business cycles. It was Herbert Hoover actually commissioned a study on what caused the Great Depression. And it came back that there were regular cycles that happened. And one of the more dramatic cycles was the Great Depression. And so they got together people from universities and, you know, the vice president of the United States and other important people, other corporate CEOs, and they formed a foundation that started sharing information about cycles. And that's not really widely talked about or known, but it did happen. And Paul Tudor Jones is one of the people that was right in the beginning of that group. And he was famous for making $100 million the day that the stock market crashed on October 19th of 1987. Holy moly. That's a decent start, Linda, but you can't live on it. <laughs> yeah, well, he's grown that into a few billion now. So. <laughs> yeah, now he's okay. He was yeah. uh, he was teetering then, but he's okay now. Your second myth here is what you believe about money doesn't matter. Like that doesn't matter at all. You say that's baloney. It does matter what your pre-existing beliefs are. Oh, absolutely. Because you know, there's so much bias in movies, TV, whatever. That rich people are bad. They're criminals. They're crooked. They did something, and that's certainly true. There, there is that. You know, American Greed. I guess that TV show. But there's also a lot of people that are good, wholesome people that employ a lot of people in our economy that help others that give to charity. They're just good citizens. So no matter what you think, if you're in one or the other of those two camps, it's really going to color whether you're comfortable pursuing wealth or not. Because if you think it's a bad thing, 
or if it's something your parents fought about, you have a lot of negativity around, who's going to want to go in that direction? You're going to have natural blocks and maybe rebellion against wanting to move toward a more wealthy situation. So yes, your mindset is incredibly important. And I don't think we talk about it enough in the traditional financial world. It gets sort of segregated into the woo-woo world and into the secret and sort of, uh, you know, it's got to be esoteric somehow. But I do think there is, um, and, and that's probably where my Think and Grow Rich comes back in, is that mindset I learned before people created their wealth. There was story after story about how they dreamed big and how they believed they could do it and how they thought their thoughts really impacted their success. And even Henry Ford himself said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And I just say, whether you think you can be wealthy or think you can't be wealthy, you're right. You have a list of to-dos at the end of every chapter of your book, which I really like to make everything actionable immediately. You you reference there a journal quite a bit. Is changing that mindset, is that kind of how you do it, this journaling that you have throughout the book? Actually, changing your mindset, I recommend through affirmations because just like we have television commercials that repeat they're repetitive. We see them over and over and over. We get sick of them, but we can always repeat, you know, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. We get the jingle. That's changing our mindset. That's changing the thoughts about a product or what we believe about a product. The same thing is true of our brain. It just works on simple repetition. The problem with affirmations, when you're saying something that's not yet true, our brain tends to argue with us. So it will say, if you say, I'm a millionaire, and or I have all the money in the world, or I'm so rich, or whatever, and you're not, your brain will actually argue with you. Have you ever tried that with affirmations? Have you ever yes. given that a shot oh, and it, seen that? Yeah. yeah. It happens to everybody. And so what I do is I teach people to do an affirmation and then say an already true statement, and that shuts down that arguing, and then you say the next affirmation you want to be true, and then you say an already true statement. So you'd say money comes to me easily and effortlessly, my name is Linda. It just shuts down any arguing that you have. So affirmation, simple repetition, it's not difficult, but most people just don't do it. You're teaching yourself to lie to yourself, Linda, is what you're saying. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself (laughs) until you can believe it. You can believe the new lie, and then the new lie that becomes your new truth will become realized in your life. That's correct. You ever hear that? There's that comedian, Emo Phillips, who talks about, you know, I was walking down the street and I thought, you know, my brain is the most important part of my body. And then I realized, well, look who's telling me that. (laughs) (laughs) Just sorry. I know it's serious stuff, but by the same token, I think this process of seeing yourself already there also goes back to the name of your book that you're already a wealthy heiress. If you're you're already there now, yeah, there's concept and training of efficacy If you show people what it's like at the top of the mountain, it's much easier to get to the top because you can already visualize yourself there. If you don't visualize yourself there, you're going nowhere. That's right. Joe, why do you think the first million is the hardest to make? Because you've never been there before. Because you've never been there before and you don't believe you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Once you've done it, then you believe you can do it. And the second and the third aren't as hard. But they always say the first million is the hardest and it's because we have to convince ourselves. We're, We're the ones that have to be convinced. I've been bringing up my running a lot lately because it still amazes me. You know, running that first marathon was hard as heck. It took forever uh, to train for it. I cried my brains out at the end because I couldn't believe I did it. And now I've run 12. So to your point, you know, once you've done the first one, 
th- then you're like, okay, you, you go back on that experience. I have time for a couple more of these, Linda. We're not going to have time to get through all of them, but I think the next two are pretty important. Well, I think they're all pretty important, but I want to get to two of these. The myth that wealth means unlimited spending. I think everybody thinks that when you're wealthy, that means you just go, it's a party every day, right? Well, that's why most lottery winners are completely broke within five years. And most people that inherit money are broke within five years because you see spending is a one-way street. It's only money going out the door. And if you don't learn how to make that money come back in the door, then you don't have any money replenishing that money. And so then when you're spending it, you're ending it. So you need to learn how to invest money so it regenerates and creates more money. And then you can continue to spend forever. And then there's the myth of frugality, which this might be my favorite myth of all. (laughs) Well, there's this idea that if we just don't spend, that somehow we're going to end up wealthy. And that's just not true. The savings component is super important. And I have the six steps to wealth and saving a nest egg is the second step. Creating a wealthy mindset is step one. But you need to invest in something that's going to compound and build your wealth. And those are steps four and five. So you need to have an investment that's going to grow and create more. And that is what is going to create wealth for you. Not just being a miser, not just living a meager living, not living in a shed in your backyard, you know, not driving, not owning a car. I mean, some of the suggestions I see people do, I think, you know, life is abundant. Why do we have all these things on the planet that are so abundant if we're not able to use them, have them? you know, it's just crazy. So I want people to live an abundant life. I want them to see what's possible. And to do that, I think you can't just put these restrictions on yourself that money is somehow bad or not meant to be spent, or just you have to live this meager existence. The book is You're Already a Wealthy Heiress. Now think and act like one, six practical steps to make it a reality now. You not only go through the the six steps, Linda, you also go through some of the challenges like what if your spouse, partner, or family is an obstacle? I bet that never happens to anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's a real common one. And I also have a wealth checklist at the back of the book. I have the millionaire action plan, a map, so you actually can deal with whatever obstacles you're dealing with. If you don't have enough money that you're starting with, if you don't know how to invest, if you are older and didn't start uh, investing young enough, all of these things are there to help you overcome whatever obstacles you have, because it still is possible for you. Where do we get it? You can get it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and any bookstore. Awesome. And here at Stacky Benjamins, we support independent booksellers. So if you go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Powell's, I bet it's there too. So Linda, thanks a ton for hanging out with us. Thank you so much, Joe. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And anyone else having trouble getting back to work a whole week after Labor Day? When Gertrude told me Joe and OG were going to make me work this whole week, I about snapped. And then I realized, well, that's pretty much every week, so here I am. But while I'm here gracing you with my presence, you and I both know that my soul longs for the open road. And while I've been accused of being a rambling man once or twice before, We all realize it's time to get back on the road again with your favorite part of the show, my trivia. So I'm going to hit you with my best shot, which is this. What was the name of the first transcontinental highway? (laughs) 
thanks to Warby Parker for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Warby Parker makes high quality, stylish, and affordable glasses. It started only 95 bucks, including prescription lenses. By the way, if anybody can make me look good, I know they can make you look good. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. For every pair of glasses sold, Warby Parker distributes a pair of glasses to somebody in need which I think is pretty awesome. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free with their home try-on program. In fact, I've got the home try-on program here right now, and I'm going to buy a pair of glasses. And if you want to know which one I'm thinking about buying, head to our Instagram page, and you can see there all of my try-on of the different Warby Parker glasses. The Home Try-On Program lets you order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door where you can try them on in the comfort of your own home and get feedback from friends, family, colleagues, and your Instagram pals. Keep the frames for five days before sending them back. Use a prepaid return shipping label and there's no obligation at all to purchase. After you head to warbyparker.com forward slash SB and place your home try-on order, make sure to download the Warby Parker app from the iTunes app store. So for me, in my try-on kit, we've got the Hardy, the Watts, the Roosevelt, the Wilkie, and the Gilbert. And I think for me, it's actually going to be the Hardy. I don't know. You'll see the different ones. It's either the Wilkie or the Hardy. The, the more square lenses look better on my face. I thought that the Watts was going to look pretty cool, and I think it's going to look pretty cool on a lot of people. The Gilbert also is pretty interesting, and I like the Gilbert. But I think I'm going to end up going with either the uh, the Wilkie or the Hardy. I don't know what I like. I got five of them. Try them out at home. Show people. Send them back within five days. And I've got the best glasses for my face and didn't have to commit to anything. So here's the deal. You can try Warby Parker out for yourself and see how good you look in their frames. Go to warbyparker.com slash SB to order your own free home try-on kit with free shipping all around warbyparker.com slash sb make sure you type lowercase sb so that they know that we sent you because that's how they support the show is by knowing that uh, people that take our advice on warby parker use our link and if you've got an iphone 10 be sure to download warby parker app and try their new find your fit feature that measures key facial features through the phone's true depth camera and suggest what Warby Parker frames best fit your face. We're also brought to you by Away. Thanks to Away for supporting Stacking Benjamins. You know, it's funny, I never cared about luggage. And now as you're listening to this, I'm headed home from Europe. And I know based on the first two trips I had with my Away luggage, I dig this luggage more than any luggage I've ever had. By cutting out the middlemen, Away is able to offer the perfect luggage made with high-quality materials at a much lower price. Away makes affordable, high-quality suitcases that also charges your phone and all your other devices. They have a variety of options. It comes in over 10 colors, five sizes. The carry-on, I've got one of those. I also have the bigger carry-on. I don't have the kids' carry-on. They also have the medium bag and the large bag for people that uh, know you're going to pack extra stuff. But Away's designed this perfect suitcase that makes your travel experience stress-free. The carry-on bags feature two USB ports and a high-capacity battery that allows you to charge multiple devices on the go, like phones, tablets, laptops, and you don't have to worry about dead phones or you don't have to fight over the outlets at the airport. It's super durable. I love the way they do the stitching. Like, I'm not a pro at this stuff, but this bag is different than any that I've ever had. It's super lightweight, and yet you can feel that it's not going to come apart. It's made with premium impact-resistant German polycarbonate. 
I have no idea what German polycarbonate is, but I know that it's sturdy. Smooth ride in any direction. You've got four 360-degree spinner wheels that don't get stuck or break like my last ones did. It's theft-proof. USA-approved combination lock is built in to keep your stuff safe. And even overpackers can fit everything they need. Patent pending interior compression system tightly buckles in bulky items. I brought beer back from Philadelphia when I just went there, and I had no idea how I was going to fit it. By the way, thanks to my friend Karen for getting me a four-pack of Bell's beer for me to stick in my suitcase, but I could not figure out. And guess what? Away Luggage figured it out for me. Here's the deal. It comes with a lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, Away is going to fix it or replace it for life. And you get a risk-free 100-day trial period. If at any point you decide it's not for you, you can return it for a full refund. No questions asked. Away is a special offer for our friends of the Stacky Benjamin Show. For $20 off your suitcase, go to awaytravel.com slash SB. Use promo code SB at checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash SB. Promo code SB. You seriously are not going to regret it. Welcome back, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and it's all right now. Baby, it's all right now because I am back with your trivia. And because our theme is getting back on the open road, let's not make this a slow ride, shall we? So here was your question. What was the name of the first transcontinental highway? The answer? On today's date back in 1913, the U.S. debuted a coast-to-coast road called the Lincoln Highway. Now followed in most places across America by I-80. Now it's time for me to hit the road. See ya! You've traveled I-80 before? Oh, probably end-to-end, actually. Almost. I think I've probably been on that entire highway. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Linda P. Jones for stopping by. What I love about Linda's approach here, OG, is that you've already got it inside you, whatever that goal is. I remember when I was in training, show people the top of the mountain first, and then the route up to the top of the mountain is much easier. Have the vision, and then figure out how to get there. You got it. Hey, let's throw out Haven Lifeline. We're going to tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Beating the benchmark, which is awesome, and uh, traveling down I-80. I don't know. And not at the same time, or maybe at the same time. I don't know. It's actually your loved ones and your time, but those are two good ones. It's why they've created a modern way to buy quality term life insurance. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. I love this idea of the Haven Life Plus, all the extras you get, and the fact that it takes you a fraction of the time. I didn't think this was even that, like I thought it was a big deal, but I didn't think it was that, that big a deal until I recently did uh, something similar with a fintech company getting my homeowners together. And then it just reminded me how this idea of getting this stuff done quickly, just so much, so much better. We have all this technology. We might as well put it to good use, right? Amen. And speaking of better, we've got Michael's going to save the show here. Say hi, Michael. Hey, Joe and OG. I bought my house five years ago for $127,000 on a 30-year FHA mortgage at 4%. 
I'm considering refinancing the current balance of $115,000 on a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage at 425 to 4.3%, and that comes with reasonable closing costs. The break-even point with the PMI to the closing costs would be about 20 months, and I'm okay with that. The question is, does the refinance make sense? A few other pieces of information. The house meets all of my family's needs and will continue to do so for at least two to three years, likely longer. Our only other debt is $35,000 in student loans, and we'll have that paid off by the end of next year. Our long-term financial goals are currently focused on setting ourselves up for flexibility to achieve our future success. I hope that's enough information. Love the show, guys, even though the only thing I've really ever learned is to dump all my target date funds. Thanks. <laughs> this is Mike in Las Vegas. Mike, thanks for the question. And uh, uh, refinance where those interest rates are a little close together. Yeah, I wouldn't do this. I get what we're trying to do. Maybe try to pay off the house in 15 years instead of 30 or I guess 15 instead of 25 because you're five years into it right now. But you're going to start that interest payment cycle over. Now you're starting to, if you look at your statement, inch into that principle a little bit. You're five years down the line so far. And if you're worried about PMI, why don't you just call the bank and ask them to get rid of it? If you uh, have the appreciation, a lot of times banks will come out and do another appraisal and be able to uh, wipe the PMI out. And I like the 30-year for the flexibility, the cash flow. And then on top of it, you said, I might not be here in two or three years. So well, this he, sounds well, he like said he'll um, be there at least two or three years, but you, you're flipping that over. Yeah, I know. But talking about that vision thing, when you put that into your brain, like, oh, this is good for two years. What do you think is going to happen in two years from now or three years from now? You're going to start thinking about other things. So if you want to pay the house off in 15 years, do it, but save the money in a separate account. And then that just gives you all the flexibility in the world. You get a job loss or a, move or, you know, who knows what happens. Some people might be screaming at their device that OG is talking about a concept called sunk cost, which means that interest that he's already paid out. And actually, I'm going to say, if you're somebody who's doing that, instead, what, what I think Michael should do is forget about the interest he's paid and look at the interest going forward on the 30 year that he has now versus the 15 he's getting. And what you're going to find is, is that the interest out of pocket from here on out might even be lower because he's already had it socked to him by the bank because of the amortization schedule. So not about sunk cost as much as about, I don't think the interest rate difference is actually the interest rate difference going forward that he thinks that it is. But I'll tell you, I'm only on board OG with you one way, and that's this. If he's thinking about switching to a 15 with the goal of paying his house off earlier, getting financial independence earlier, he has to call the bank right now and switch the payment over to the payment that he thought that 15 was going to be that's automatically taken out. Because if he hopes he's going to send him more, he's never going to do it. If he trusts himself to write additional payments, studies show he's probably not going to do it. He's got to set it up on automatic so that he makes that 15-year payment until, to your point, something happens that he really has to back it down and he's got that flexibility because of a disability or some you know, tragic thing that happens in his family. What about having that set up as an automatic withdrawal on the same day just into your brokerage account? 
Oh, I for like the next ten years. I like that too. If he's not going to touch it, I think that. Yeah, you know thyself, right? Yeah, if I mean, you're going to be slippery, slippery fingers. Leave it alone. It's that Wall Street Journal headline we did about people using their four hundred one k like an ATM. If you're going to yeah. use that brokerage account like an ATM, because well, this is a pay off my mortgage early fund, which is nice. But it's not the end of the world if I don't. But a 67 Corvette's nicer. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I found a hell of a deal. Yeah, yeah. They definitely know yourself. You know, here's another thing that I was just thinking about. If he's got $35,000 of student loans, and that's the current balance, and the goal is to have that paid off by next year, I mean, to me, that means that in over the next, what, 15 months, he's making an extra thirty-five grand. Is that kind of what he said? Did you hear that? That's what I heard. Yeah. And so if that's the case, dude, why don't you just hammer on the mortgage for three more years and just be freaking done with it? Like, if that's really the goal, then just make it the goal and knock it out of the park. How great would that be? And then we'll have I you mean, on the show. Let's have you on the show you, then, Michael. Yeah, you said, you said, hey, I've got, uh, other than this $100,000 mortgage, the only other thing I've got is thirty five grand in student loans. And I went, oh my goodness. And he said, but that's going to be paid off by next year. Okay, so 15 months from now, thirty five grand has gone. That means you save thirty five grand in fifteen months. If your house mortgage is, you know, hundred thousand, give or take, you're making your normal payments anyway. I bet you could pay this off in thirty months. So let's just do that. That could be the other side. Thanks for the question, Michael. We also get letters down here in the basement. And Doug just handed me this one. This comes to us from Mike. Mike says, "Hello, SB crew. I have about fifty thousand dollars to invest after the sale of a house. I'm currently maxing out my four hundred one k at work." I plan to take 11000 of that to open an individual IRA account for myself and my wife. I have to see if we would still qualify for the Roth. Would it be beneficial to take some of the rest and open a SEP IRA for my wife? She's self-employed, so I'd assume she'd qualify for that account. I just came across it, so I don't really know the benefits of opening that account. Thanks for all the killer podcasts. Thanks, Mike. What do you think? Should she open a SEP, maybe a simple or a solo 401k? A lot of this is going to depend on your future contribution potential as well as earnings from the misses. Generally speaking, from a SEP, it's easier to set up because it's just an, you know, you just open an account and it's easier to maintain than, say, a, a 401k or a simple account would be. But it kind of also depends on how the income structure is. You know, if you make $20,000 a year, little side hustle, little side business type of deal. The most you can get into a SEP is going to be 25% of that. So you can put 15, or I'm sorry, 5,000 in. If on the other hand, you made $20,000 and you set up a solo 401k, you could put all 20,000 in you know, your, your, your contributions of the 18.5 plus an employer match. So, well, almost all of it. So I guess it kind of depends on what your uh, contribution goals are going to be. Keep in mind on the IRA front that since you already have a 401k plan at work, you are not going to get any deductibility for that IRA if you set up that IRA. So you might be looking at that as the wonderfully named backdoor Roth IRA opportunities. But keep in mind any other outside IRAs that you have on that as well is going to affect the ability to uh, to convert that to Roths depending so I guess it kind of depends on what your goal is and what your forecast is for contributions moving forward. If you're thinking, hey, I got a few bucks, want to shelter as much as I can, Mrs. makes a few dollars, yeah, open the SEP, be done with it, and you can put in 25%. But you could do 25% this year, and if you have some money left over, 
put another 25% in next year and, you know, kind of eat that out of your taxable account to get a tax deduction on it. And that's the exciting part of this for people that don't know how these accounts work. And one piece of Mike's question I don't want to take lightly is he doesn't know the benefits of opening that type of account. And that's that it's a giant tax shelter, which is awesome. You're not going to pay capital gains tax or dividends tax as the money makes money every year. And that's the reason why you want to use these. So you avoid some of that friction every year until you're ready to spend the money. Of course, whenever you've got a tax shelter, that always comes with some caveats like dates that you got to make sure that you're aware of, of when you can take the money out. So Stephen Covey always talks about in his famous book, Seven Habits to Highly Effective People. When you pick up an end of the stick, remember, you're also picking up the other end. Before you put money in a tax shelter, know the other end of the stick. And they're a little bit different for all of them. And we'll save that for another show, Mike. But but you're well on your way with OG's sage advice. That's going to do it for today. By the way, if you need more from OG's team to help with your financial plan, they are taking clients. Here's what you do. Text the word stacker to 44222, and that will give you a link to their schedule. And you're well on your way. Also, by the way, well on the way to the refrigerator, people leaving reviews of this show. Thank you so much for people that have told other people exactly what they're getting into when they listen to Stacking Benjamins. J.D. King of Prussia says it's crack cocaine for your ears. I don't know that mom would like that. She put it on the fridge, but it might not stay there very long because mom's not a big fan of illegal drugs. Okay. (laughs) J.D. King of... She's a big fan of legal ones, though. She is a big fan of legal drugs. Listening to it will probably eventually ruin your life, but you won't be able to stay away from it. It's clear these guys firmly believe in the mantra, fake it till you make it. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) If you listen to this podcast for very long, the only thing you'll learn is that they haven't made anything. My favorite part of the show is the part at the very end, the 30 seconds of absolute silence. Ah, keep selling the crack. JD King of Prussia, you're hilarious. That comes with five stars, by the way. You wouldn't know that that was a positive review except for the five stars. Maybe he thought five was the opposite end of the spectrum. Good stuff. Might be she. Might be JD might be a she. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Who knows? Probably is. Yes. All right. Uh, Thanks for that great review. If you leave us a review, uh, maybe you'll make it to mom's fridge as well. All right, Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what did we learn today? First, take some advice from Linda P. Jones. You already have the ability to have big wealth inside of you. Now it's time to just shine your light. Get started. Second, active funds? Sure, they're changing, and that's good news. But are they dead? Probably not. Right for your portfolio? Well, it depends on your goals. But the big lesson? Don't tell Joe's mom that you're taking out the El Camino for a much-needed drive. Now I got a to-do list that includes tacos and thyroid medication and a six-pack of root beer, none of which is for me. Special thanks to Linda P. Jones. You can find more from Linda at lindapjones.com or, you know what I'm going to say, in our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. 
SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. I have been binging. Well, I was before I went to Europe. Did I tell you that, that I went to Europe? Yeah, um, yeah, you've brought it up once or twice. Before. before, but I'll tell you stories about that later. But uh, today, I want to talk about this show I've been watching on Netflix. It is a one-season-only special series called Godless. There's 83 good men. Gone in less than five minutes. It's a fearful thing to love what death can touch. Where are all the men at? Dead. Mine took them. All of them. How has the town fared without any men around? Someone's got to look after things around here. A town full of ladies. Bang, bang. It's ripe fruit for the wicked. Bang, bang. Frank Griffin's been looking for Roy Good. He's going to kill anyone that Roy Good loves or cares about. The good people of Creed let them walk their streets. Now they don't have no streets. Bang, bang. When he finds out who's living here, bang, bang. God help you folks. Mister, we're a lot stronger than you think we are. Well then, anytime you got to beep out a trailer, you know, it's a little feisty. This is a Western that focuses on a town where 85 men who worked in the town, almost all the men in the town were killed when the mine collapsed. And now you have a town that's almost all women. And one of the women who live outside the town is a character played by Michelle Dockery, who is also the oldest daughter on another series that I loved, little-known show called Downton Abbey. And it's funny how she can transform herself from an English upper-crust family to an American Western woman. Just <laughs> and, yeah. and, and she's such a good actress, you totally believe the transformation. Sam Watterson plays the marshal who's chasing this head of a gang played by Jeff Daniels. Every time I've seen Jeff Daniels, in Dumb and Dumber, he's fantastically stupid. In, was it called Network? Network News or uh, the HBO series? 
Mm, never saw it. The Aaron Sorkin series. Anyway, on that series, uh, he plays the head anchor, incredibly smart guy there. You always believe him in the character he plays. And here, mm-hmm. I've never seen him play this particular character. When his character comes on screen, you know somebody's going to die. And you know it's <laughs> going to be fairly random, and it's going to be incredibly messed up. Like, I, I haven't felt my pulse go up from an evil character as much as this guy, except for, you know, there've been a few times. I remember the one, what was the James Bond? Well, you don't watch the James Bond shows, do you? Shows? The James Bond movies. I watched James Bond movies. Did you? Did you see the one with uh, Javier Bardem uh, plays the evil dude yeah. in one of the- How James would I not movies? watch James Bond movies? I just wonder, I don't think- I'm Not you, a heathen. I think you did. Well, you don't watch all I've the Marvel stuff. I've seen all of the James Bond movies. All right. Well, good for you. Since High Sean five. Connery on. High five. Because all the ones before that were dog crap. All the ones before Sean Connery? Sean Connery was the first one. <laughs> oh. I see where you're going there. I I, I, I got you. Late at see, the hamsters in my brain were working through that little funny mm-hmm. that you did, and I got it. But But Jeff Daniels is a phenomenal evil guy, and he strings up an entire town of people, kills them all. And now the law is looking for him, but he's stronger than the law. So trying to get to yeah. Jeff Daniels and his gang is very difficult. While you have You're thinking of Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. Well, he's scary there he too. Was super evil in that movie. It, it, I I agree with that also. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Jeff Daniels, though, equal to the task here in Godless. Godless only has, I believe, we're on episode five, has eight episodes. But this is fantastic. I had three different people tell me I had to watch Godless in the past four months. And so the second that I finished The Last Kingdom, I went and ran to it, and now I can't put it down. I am uh, on a couple of things here recently. I am in love with this podcast. It's all about Alabama football and Nick Saban. And I know that the Michigan State Homer in the audience here, <clears throat> or at the table here. Who would that be? Despises Nick Saban. I like Nick Saban. Oh, do you? I, Every other state person that I know is like, that guy left us, he's a jack wagon. I like Nick Saban. I don't want to get into Michigan State stuff, but I thought all the stuff he said when he left was so true of Michigan State football when he left. And I think that largely they've changed from there. Mm. So good for you. I don't know anything about it. Anyway, so season three, uh, there's five episodes into it. It's all about how does he create, you know, this. Excellent. Hey, you just won a national championship. How do you go back to the drawing board? Wow. So it's kind of cool listening to him. He has some interviews in there, some uh, other coaches and former players. So it's season three, this podcast called Origins with James Andrew Miller is the name of the uh, podcast. The show is called so, Origins? Origins. Okay. O-R-I-G-I-N-S. Yep. I'm, I'm Origins. Totally, that sounds um, like something I season, completely like. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Season three is about Nick Saban and Alabama football. Season two is about ESPN. Season one was about Curb Your Enthusiasm. So all three of those would probably be pretty good. Podcast-wise, I continue to listen to select episodes of, of Tim Ferriss, but I went in the back catalog because I haven't listened to many lately on my run this morning. I listened to his with Aisha Tyler. And I'm, oh, okay. And that I'm, was probably pretty good. And yeah, I'm loving that discussion. Every time that woman talks, just she's so brilliant. 
I actually, it's funny, you know, she's a comedian. I mean, everybody knows she's a comedian. I don't think she's that funny, but when she's not being funny and she's just on an interview, she is incredibly smart. And just yeah. her, her, her view of the world is one that, that I largely share and love listening to her. And I learn stuff though, every time that I hear her talk. The thing that's amazing to me, two top podcasters like those two, Tim Ferriss on question number two totally doesn't even listen to her answer and asks her a question that she just answered. Mm. And they left it in there. I mean, they, they, they left the, the re-ask of the question. I thought, how, how weird is that? But then the, the other thing, one of Well, the, what episode was this? You said you went back in the catalog. Oh, like four, you know. four episodes ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just not. Yeah, no, I'm just not keeping up with every single episode. So instead of listening, because it's like they're like two and a half hours long. Yeah, instead of listening, our show only worse. (laughs) If you read the reviews, (laughs) Uh, but yeah, I just went back a few episodes because the current topic didn't interest me that much, and so I really like that. But book wise, I'm listening. I'm re-listening to the book Traction, which is uh, Traction takes. The e-myth, it's the e-myth on steroids. Basically, Mm. Traction takes the e-myth and breaks it down even more into applicable systems for business owners. And then we had a bunch of people ask us about this guy and having him on the show. But he's for entrepreneurs, and I actually met him at Podcast Movement, but he's not somebody who really is in our wheelhouse for being on the show. But uh, Mike Michalowicz and Profit First, I'm reading, which I've been told 57 times is a great book. And I'm on chapter two. And yeah, so far, so good. Got it. All right. That's what we're doing. What are you doing? Tell us down in the basement on our Facebook group, stackybenjamins.com forward slash basement. See ya. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.